All right, here we go. Busted Media Podcast, podcast number two. So we weren't canceled after one episode, like some failed TV shows. Yeah. We're on to number two so far. We did make it. There were some high-level executives who had questions, but we persevered. We, we, here we are. We did. Investors, possibly you. So, all right, we are at, uh, we're, it's a frigid, cold morning in Chicago. Uh, but we are here for podcast number two. Uh, we're going to get right into it. It's Jeff and Tony with you. Uh, big news, and it's never too early to talk football. It is NFL Combine time. Yes, it, it is. has started, which means instead of just talking about the actual Combine and how people perform, what everyone's really just talking about is Kyler Murray and whether or not he's too short, just tall enough, if his hands are big enough. I've never seen one person get dissected like this, which goes right into our first topic. Is he actually going to get drafted number one? I don't think so. Neither do I. But I brought this up on the nightcap the other night. And if you don't tune into the nightcap, that's Busta Media's Monday and Thursday night live recap show. Tune into that. That's more of an editorial view on things. And my point on Kyler Murray was that if, if that's the biggest story from the draft, what a shitty draft this may be. I mean, I don't see a whole bunch of talent. So who I think is going to go number one is Nick Bosa. Out of where? The Ohio State the University. Ohio State. That's right. And he's a good player. And I think he's actually a little bit better than his brother. I don't think that's a controversial statement. Uh, he's, 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 more, he's quicker. He's, more, he's got more velocity to his game. And I don't even think Kyler Murray is the best quarterback in this draft. No, he's not. Who do you, who would you say? Who do you think? Dwayne Haskins. Let's, let's stay. Let's stay at the at the Ohio State University. It's Dwayne Haskins, one hundred percent. And I think it's. Uh, I think Haskins was way undervalued going into the Heisman vote. And obviously, I'm a biased fan, but I think that the fact that he was such a distant third was ridiculous to begin with. That's and, fair. And I think that you know now that all the talk is about Kyler over Haskins is insane. So I think Haskins is the best quarterback prospect. I actually have a QB prospect in this draft that's going to go late that I think is a dark horse. We can get into that maybe once we're done talking Let me about tell you, so with Haskins, my thought on the QB class this year is they're, they're all prospects, meaning I don't think there's one that can step into a pro offense right now and succeed. Like we've seen over the past couple of years, they all have some shortcomings either in the passing game throwing the ball downfield. My biggest criticism of Murray is that he can't make that 15-yard out throw. And that's a throw you need to have if you're going to be a pro quarterback. Haskins, can make, he has the arm. He can make those throws. I just don't have the confidence in him enough yet to be able to dissect defenses and be dynamic in third down in, in those situations where you need to make quick decisions. I didn't see that too often from him. And it was probably because he didn't have too many of those situations at Ohio State. But... I don't think Justin Herbert, when he comes out, I think is the most pro-ready quarterback in, in college right now. But he's not. So if I, if I was a team and I needed a quarterback, I would wait. I wouldn't commit anything to any of these quarterbacks. I would wait. But I think Haskins is the best prospect in the draft. I think I agree with that. I think Haskins might need some time. I mean, everybody's beating up on the Giants for not getting rid of Eli. But I actually think if you can draft Haskins – let him sit behind Eli for a year, that actually might not be a bad strategy because I, I after watching Dwayne Haskins play every game as a fan of the team he played on, mm-hmm. he was very good, but there were games like the Penn State game where they dialed up pressure on him, and 
as the game went on, he got better and he made he throws did. when it counted. But he he did show. I mean, he's got the right temperament. He's but he did show to be rattled at times in certain games, depending on he could be a gunslinger and gun shy in the same game. Which you know is what I mean? weird, but he can. Yeah, be, yeah, one hundred percent. And my thing with Kyler is. I don't think it's an arm talent issue. I really don't. I, I watch the guy throw. I mean, he he can make all the throws, in my opinion, but hmm. his size is a factor, and you can talk about his mobility, but every NFL quarterback that's relied on mobility has done one of two things. They've either gotten injured or fizzled out, mm-hmm. or they've revamped their game to become more of a pocket passer. Russell Wilson has already adjusted his game. He runs when he absolutely has to, but he tries to beat you from the pocket. You're seeing Dak Prescott try to learn to do that. You would see Michael Vick later in his career do the same thing. And then you have guys like RG3 who failed to make that adjustment and they got hurt over and over again. So, you know, for me personally, it, it, I think Kyler's size does come into question. But long story short, I'm not super sure about Kyler, but let's let's talk about it from a, from an odds and a gambling perspective. In what are we seeing? In there? faraway places, you can bet on the first overall pick. The odds-on favorite is Nick Bosa, minus 175. You have to lay 175 bucks to win 100. Would you like to take a guess at Kyler Murray's odds to be first pick overall without looking um, at my damn iPad, sir? Uh, I would say probably. I mean, let me help you out. It's three to one. Three to one. What's so, the point of asking me if I can't even guess? Well, it, it, when I have someone with Parkinson's here. Okay. It's three to one, everyone. Speed, speed it up. <laughs> uh, Quinn Williams, four to one. I like his game. I like his game a lot. He is physical. No one's going to no draft an interior defensive lineman number one. It's not going to happen. It depends on if there's going to be trades up front. Because if there are, he may go number one. You have Dwayne Haskins, your guy, 12 to one. Ed Oliver, 14-1, another player whose game I like a lot. Uh, this isn't a particularly deep defensive draft, but I do like him as well. Finally, Josh Allen, not the quarterback, the Kentucky edge. Did you see this now? They're, they're, they're labeling edge instead of like defensive end or outside linebacker. Yeah, it's edge, edge rusher. Edge rusher. Yeah. Uh, Josh Allen, 14-1 as well to go number one overall. With those players recently coming out of college, let's go over way too early Heisman odds. We could talk college football all day long. Yeah, it's never too early to go football. So way too early Heisman odds. Let's uh, let me let me kill the anticipation for everybody and the the hype. Trevor Lawrence gonna be the odds-on favorite for Heisman at this point in time. I would assume. Incorrect, sir. Incorrect. Incorrect. Tua. Tua is still the number one. Um, you can still get some decent value on Tua at two, at plus two fifty. Now let me give a little bit of inside baseball for those who like to bet futures. And this will tie in with our education segment, okay? With futures, first and foremost, you need to shop around, which is to say, don't just look at your one book. You need to sort of look around and see if you can get a better number because different shops will be taking money on different players and that will adjust the odds. Secondly, these odds are going to be drastically different right before week one and drastically different after week one. So if you like a player and there's some value there, lock him up early and often because the odds are only going to go down with that being said we went over to we went over trevor lawrence there's some other players i'm not going to read the list because it's it's about who you expect but give me a name that you like and why for a heisman pick i love for a couple reasons we're going to talk about value so that's part of it too you want to you want to you want to pick somebody that has good payout and has some realistic chance of actually winning 
Um, so from a value perspective and just as a college football fan, liking what could be on the horizon, I love Justin Herbert. Um, I believe right now Heisman odds for him are 30-1. to 1. Yes, correct? 30 so to 1. He's obviously returning to an Oregon team that's pretty talented in a, a Pac-12 conference that is open season. Pretty weak. It's, it, it's pretty weak, and as long as they stay healthy and avoid their classic choke job like they did against Stanford last year, um, I honestly think that they're going to have a chance to be Pac-12 champs, contenders for the playoff, and if he plays well and stays healthy, we all know that your team's success is what elevates you into the Heisman race. So that's a guy right now that has all he'll have every opportunity to get up there and at thirty to one, that is the definition of value. And another part of value for me is when you're talking about futures, if he is going to win the Heisman, what's gonna have to happen? And I think the easiest answer to that is Oregon is have to gonna have to be contending for a playoff berth. Is that right? Correct. And up until run the ball. I think we went over this recently. Run the ball. Don't give it to your running back. Neil is what I'm trying to say. Neil, it, they were that close to, to getting a, a Pac-12 championship. The, the player that I think has a little bit of value is Alan Bowman. Texas Tech. My guy, Cliff Kingsbury, is not there anymore. But that offense is high-flying. Texas Tech seems to be that team every year. Oklahoma State used to be this team. They, they, they'll have a great run-up and they will play one middle-of-the-pack team in a game they should win and just crap down their pants. But if Texas Tech is in contention for a Big 12 title, it's going to be Bowman who's going to be putting up 600 yards and, and seven touchdowns a game. Not out of the question. In that same thought process, you could go to Austin and take Sam Ellinger um, at 40-1. to 1. So if these teams are going to be in contention – the quarterbacks are going to have to play well. As opposed to a guy like Jonathan Taylor of Wisconsin, we know the Heisman historically is a quarterback award. It's very tough for a running back to win, even with 2,000 rushing yards, 21 touchdowns. Jonathan Taylor might be this generation's best running back in, just in college, not as a pro prospect, just as a college runner. But there's not a whole bunch of value on him. I mean, he's 15-1, to 1, and I just don't see them giving it to a running back. I mean, do you see them give? I mean, Jonathan Taylor is the best running back over the past three years, and he hasn't even been in the top three. I think a guy like Jonathan Taylor, if he was going to win it, he'd have won it already. You know, it's kind of like a good point. He, he's he's a guy that has been pretty steady. Um, but I, I agree with you. I also think you have to look at style of offense that these quarterbacks play in. The one thing about Sam Ellinger that I think makes him a good dark horse for all of this is you look at the way that they use him. I, I always draw comparisons to my team, but that's because Tom Herman was the offensive coordinator on sure. Ohio State, won a national title. And Sam Ellinger runs that offense the same way that Tom Herman used JT Barrett. So throws the ball well, but they do use him as a power running option, especially in short yardage situations. But what that also means is goal line touchdowns. We've seen Sam Ellinger, he can rack up 10 plus rushing touchdowns over the course of a year. When they get inside of the five, he's going to take those QB draws in. It's another way to blow up his stats. Stats are a part of the Heisman. If you have a quarterback that, you know, is throwing a lot of touchdowns, accumulating a lot of yards, but also finishes the year with 10 or 12 rushing touchdowns, you're going to be right there. That's, that's going to put you right there, barring team success, which is another big factor that Texas is going to have to take a step up this year. Yeah, and the, my last thought on, on the college game before we move on is we'll, we're going to get into some more betting styles as we get closer to college football. Tom Herman is 13-1 and one as an underdog. In, in, as a head coach so you prefer not to be an underdog at Texas because that means you're probably on the wrong end of, of championship contention 
but he has shown the ability throughout his career to get his teams ready to play. It might be the smooch before the game, honestly. The the line with the with the players and the hugs and the smooches, that might be the, the secret sauce down in Austin this year. Is Texas back? Uh, yet to be determined, but if they are, Sam Ellinger is going to be a big, big part. And well, certainly, they, cer- they certainly ended the season well, uh, taking it to Georgia. I don't know if Georgia wanted to be there. I don't want to hear that excuse about. I, here, here's why. Here's why I don't want to. Just quick side note before we get on, we're staying with college, but we're going to go to hoops. The one thing about Georgia that is even more irritating, even than the whole about their performance in the Sugar Bowl, is you had guys on that team who complained and made a bunch of comments during the Orange Bowl when Bama was blasting Oklahoma in the first half about how wrong choices were made, what have you, they didn't get the right four. When you're going to talk that kind of shit, you need to go out in the Sugar Bowl against Texas and handle them. So the fact that you ended up losing that game when Kirby Smart and the players were crying and whining about not getting included in the four, like if you're and I, they might have been one of the best four teams, but if you're pissed off about getting left out, you take a big it. stage on national TV against Texas and kick their ass and prove it to everybody. So... That was the only thing that annoyed me there. But let's stay with college. Let's move to let's move to the hardwood. Yes, because it's we're almost at that time now. I love college basketball, but let's get real. A lot of people don't become serious fans. It's March, about baby. Now it's March, so we're getting into that point in time where college basketball will get to the front um, of the sporting world. Let's talk about. Well, let's get your take right off the bat. What are you seeing right now developing college hoops as we get close to conference tournament? Are there long shots that people need to think about both in conference tournament mm-hmm. capabilities to mm-hmm. make a run as well as some mid-majors or some teams in the NCAA tournament that might make a run? The conference that I've been paying a lot of attention to is the A-10. Uh, the A-10 and the, the AAC. One team that has consistently surprised me with their play, and they had a, a bit of a clunker last week, but it's Cincinnati. Cincinnati is, is a, a, a team very much like Michigan State. They can shoot. They can play very, very, very locked down defense when they have to. And ultimately, a team like that who doesn't live and die by the three, like a Duke team that we've seen in the past, like a Villanova team that we've seen in the past, like a Georgetown team we've seen in the past, if you're, if you're not knocking down those threes in a tournament game, you're going to get your ass beat real quick. And Cincinnati is, is not a team that, that has that capability. They drive the lane. I like their game. Another team that has improved uh, over the past week or two, I've mentioned them last week, Michigan State continues to show me something in the Big Ten. And the Big Ten is pretty crowded up at the top. You have Michigan, you have Michigan State. I would put Purdue up there. Um, These teams are going to be duking it out in the Big Ten title, uh, Big Ten Conference Championship. Not that it matters because they're all going to get at-large bids, but... I think when you have that ramp up towards the tournament and Michigan State's probably looking at a two seed at this point, I think Lenardi has them at a two or a three, then that puts you in a really good spot, depending on how the bracket comes out, of making a deep run. And it's it's been a minute, I feel like, since Tom Izzo has had a, a pretty successful team. I could be wrong about that, but over the past two or three years, I don't recall them being in the Final Four. This is a team that has Final Four capabilities. I know you're not the biggest fan of college basketball. Have you seen anything over the past week or two that would say this is a team that I'm going to be looking out for come conference championship season? Conference championship tournament, there is a team that I think should scare a lot of people. And I honestly, I'll just I'll just come around and say it. I'll, I'm going to stay in the footprint that we're in. Big Ten tournament, 
Right now, there's 14 teams in the Big Ten. They obviously get seeded 1 through 14 for this tournament. The way the Big Ten tournament works, it opens up on a Wednesday night. You have the 11 versus the 14, the 12 versus the 13. That's considered the crap round, the play-in round, the bottom four teams. Right now, the last seed currently, I believe, if not 14th or 13th, is Penn State. And if anyone's watched Penn State this year, they beat Michigan. They hammered. They ended up. I believe they just beat Maryland. They did. They almost they beat Ohio Purdue. State. They, they took, took Purdue overtime. The They're a very good team with a lot of good scorers. They're an explosive group. Pat Chambers has done a good job. I know we talked about them last week. They are a team that could very well be the bottom seed in their conference tournament. And if they get to Friday or Saturday, I would not be shocked at all. So, you know, I don't know. We're going to talk a little bit more about how certain how certain betting options are structured to where you can take teams like that in a tournament setting. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you right now, Penn State has a chance to win at least two games in the Big Ten tournament. And if they don't get to at least Friday, which would be day three, I would be shocked, to be honest with you, because I think anybody they play that's seeded 11 through 14 with them in that bottom group, they are substantially better than. Mm-hmm. And I think that middle group that you'd see on day two, you're – your uh, Ohio State's, your Iowa's, your Minnesota's, Minnesota's. Yep. Those teams are easily susceptible to Penn State. Penn State can pick one of them off. So, I agree with that. That's my team that I think if you're going to pay attention to the Big Ten tournament, keep your eye on the Nittany Lions. Let me give you one more team in the conference championship outlay that I like. Virginia Tech. Buzz Williams continues to do his thing. They're not going to be a top three seed in the ACC. But they are a dangerous team. I think Virginia is susceptible. They've had some very bad losses. I think UNC is susceptible. I think Duke can be. I don't think anyone in the ACC is ironclad. Duke is the cream of the crop at this point, and Virginia's right there. But I don't look at either of those two teams and say they're not going to lose in their conference championship game. I don't see that. And the ACC historically has been a league where Whoever's at the top going into the conference championship tournament has generally won it. UNC had a long streak there. Uh, Michigan State last Final Four 2015, so Tom is always due. Yeah. Uh, I do like Virginia Tech, though. Um, I, the wins that they've had are strong, but the losses that they have are bad as well. So be careful uh, when you start to take a look at records. Records aren't always a great indicator of performance. I would take a look at more of uh, top 100 RPI wins, things like that. Um, and that's one of the things that smart bettors will be looking at is strength of schedule, RPI. They have this new tier one, two, uh, tier two quadrant wins. I think yeah. they're just trying one through four. Yeah, they're 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 just trying to be able to say, okay, this was a good win compared to a bad win. They're seeing what college football has done. I the hate ability that. To analyze I your hate resume it. I hate and, it. You know, they're they're going. It's, it's got to be a team by draw team basis. Some parallel. I, I agree. I I just think. I mean, you know, in terms of the NCAA tournament. Even conference tournaments, you know, college basketball, the one thing that's very unique about the postseason is you're playing in these neutral sites. You don't really know what you're going to get from a fan base perspective. The crowds can be very uneven, very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. You know, you could have you could have Michigan State playing Virginia Tech in San Diego or something. Right. You know, like you, and so you're in these weird um, neutral sites crowds are a little hard to predict and it's one it's a one and done scenario right so 
you know, I, I think that the number one thing you look for is consistency of play. I, th I think when you're looking for teams that you think are most, most built to be successful in the tournament, you're looking for teams that no matter what building they're in, for example, if you see a team that plays really well at home and not so well on the road, mm -hmm. I don't like them in the tournament because they're too Jekyll and Hyde. And when you put them in these random neutral site games with different circumstances and all that pressure, a team that's up and down is probably going to show you ugly and good characteristics all within that game. So Let me give you a perfect example of what you just described. The Southern Conference, which is not the most popular of conferences, Wofford, 17-0 in conference, 15-1 at home. They are a team that no one talks about. They just cracked the top 25 this past week. Look out for them. They should win the Southern Conference pretty handily. When they get into the, into the tournament, they will be a team right in the middle, somewhere between a 6 and a 10, that can make some noise and make a sweet 16 run, that's a team I would look out for. We're going to get a lot more clarity by podcast 3 next week after we have some clarity on conference championship stuff, but we're just trying to give you some, some long shots here that if you're going to take a flyer on a team, you can get upwards. I've said this, 25 to 1 is sort of the threshold for me. In the tournament, there's so much variance from game to game. If you're taking anything less than 25 to 1, you're not giving yourself good enough odds to pick two or three winners and make a deep run. So I would say, I would say if, if, you know, if Wofford were to come in at a 10 or a 9 or something in that realm and they're going up against a 6 seed, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, and they're, and they're getting points from just a game-by-game -game perspective, that's a team where if they're getting any sort of points in that first-round game, take them. That's another good value just from a game-by-game -game perspective, too. We can look at it from tournament odds and long shots, but just sometimes people bet the tournament games just as they are. They see a low seed. Because every year we see 12s, 13s, and 14s every year now. pick off four seeds, five seeds, six seeds. We see it all the time. I think they even said that the 12-5 the matchup is uh, the 12s have almost a better win percentage than the fives over the last 10 years. So, I mean, that's always a matchup that happens. So, even on a game-by-game -game basis, when you see some of these 12 seeds and these 13 seeds that we'll continue to talk about, you can even take them. If they're getting five points in the first round against the six seed, take it. And one thing I will have for us next week is first and second round against the spread records for each of the seeds. You're going to be shocked how often some of these lower and middle-ranked teams in the tournament cover spreads but no, don't necessarily win the game. It's the basketball, NCAA basketball, is the toughest sport to bet money line underdogs. But against the number, there are some, I think you mentioned the 12-5. That is one I know right off the top of my head. Underdogs historically have covered more often than not. So we'll get into that next week. The one other thing in basketball, we're going to move to the pros here, the association on the hardwood. Tankapalooza is no more. No, it's not, especially for our hometown team. What the hell are they doing? It's a question you have to ask. I had no business winning that game last night. They beat Boston by double digits. Yeah, I know. Um, New York has been, I think they won three in a row, the Knicks. Cleveland has been winning games. Um, Phoenix has, I think they knocked off Denver the other night. So, I, I mentioned this again on the nightcap. The, this whole idea of tanking, it doesn't seem to be as apparent this year as it has in years past. So, one thing you can use as you're looking at slates every night in, in the association is you can't necessarily just say because they're supposed to lose, they will lose. One thing you can look at though is taking a couple money line parlays of those favorites. 
Uh, I took one the other night. Uh, Boston was playing New York, and I took Boston money line. It was minus 400. You have to parlay it with something to get a little bit of value. But more often than not, those teams aren't going to be winning, but they will be covering spreads. So be careful with that. L.A. is a weird team right now. They, they're right on the bubble. Been a lot of talk about LeBron, the sheesh, the wine, chilling with two chains in the middle of a playoff push. There's no playoff push. While calling out his teammates. I mean, that's the biggest thing to me. Everyone wants to talk about LeBron being this generation's greatest player, which he is. But every time I see him at his locker during a, a press conference, he's calling out his teammates. He's saying things that as a leader, as someone who is... He's the most experienced player in the league. He's been to more final, uh, more finals than any other player active right now. You have to be able to lead your team, and I don't see that from him. It's disappointing, but it's not his job, I I've suppose. S- I've said it before. If I was a superstar in the NBA, I would not want to play with him. You can say what you want about your chances to win, but I think playing with him would be a pain in the ass. Because, I mean, the thing is, is like he's gotten to the point where whenever your team does hit any sort of rough patch, it's never him. That gets criticized. It's always a supporting cast, and then you—he's pretty much like the GM of every team he's on. Yep. You know, he orchestrates moves, and that's what pissed the young guys off at the trade deadline. They see him talking to Magic, probably trying to wheel and deal him. That I mean, people act like in professional sports, there's still a team aspect to it. The guys still want to win. There's still team chemistry. All of that still matters. That's not any different than it probably is to us when we played in high school sports. I mean, you're not getting paid, but you still have camaraderie with your teammates. Chemistry is important. And having a good locker room balance matters. And you, I, I do put a lot of stock in the fact that after that trade line, trade deadline dilemma with Anthony Davis, it's clear that that's when the downturn began. They embarrassed themselves. Yeah, they did. a franchise. They did. And, and they might end up getting them anyway. But they, More likely than not, they probably will. But it goes back to the point of tanking. These teams, no self-respecting player... It's not like you're telling your players to not play well. They need to put tape out. They're playing for their jobs. They're playing for contracts. They're playing for the opportunity to still earn a living. Now, the decision the front office, the GM, the head coach make in terms of player personnel, minutes, that's something that can affect tanking. I haven't seen it to this point yet. I, I, I haven't seen teams like Phoenix or New York or Chicago or Cleveland purposely put out bad lineups in a close game. Now, if, it's, if, you're, if you're losing by 15 points with six minutes left, you're not going to make a push. But these teams have been competitive all year. I don't, I don't see a, a betting strategy with taking the teams they're playing on a night-by-night basis. No, I was just about to say, I mean, I, I texted you the other night about it, and you kind of gave me shit. But I've been, I've actually... Bulls money line has been I've, paying. I've been, I've been betting on the Bulls. I'm 4-1 in their last five games. I've taken money line. I mean, I took a money line against the Magic. They won the one time they burned me was against the Bucks, and they started out with a 15-point lead after the first quarter and pissed it away. Yep. And they still they had a shot. It was a nine-point the spread. They lost by 11. Yeah. So they were even in the one time that they screwed me. Competitive. They were competitive up until the end. I I'll, I got two I got two thoughts here before we get to the before we get to some MMA to uh, cap everything off because we got a big UFC card tonight. Two things that I find one one's a thought one's just a quick side note that i find fascinating i'm looking at the nba standings right now the bulls are 18 and 45 right yep they are not mathematically eliminated from the playoffs yet no they're not how bad is the east the east is as bad as everyone had thought once That's lebron terrible. left yeah now the interesting thing before your last point where is indiana at right now 
Are they still a three? In the Eastern in the, Conference, yeah. Indiana right now is a three seed. They have a half game lead over the Sixers for that. If, so if the, if the season ended today, what is your 4-5 matchup? It's the Sixers and Celtics. What a great first round. Like one, I just got goosebumps. It's one round. That. It's at least one round too early from what you think. 100%. But, but that, it's good. Oh, my God, would that be a great playoff series. And I got to tell you what, Boston to me is, if you're doing stock market charts, they are on a big, big downtrend right now. I think Kyrie Irving is talking. Did you see the quote he had? Something about, well, that's not my job. It's, it's the coach's job about consistency in play. When you're passing the buck like that, that is not a good indicator no. to me. Brad Stevens has kind of always been, always dominated in a good way, the court of public opinion and perception. But this year he's kind of getting some shit he, all around. This is the first year like he's he had might, some... He might be losing his grip on things. A little bit. Kyrie Irving's a player you probably don't want to call out publicly as well. Because I don't want to say he'll quit, but he's... He'll uh, quit. He'll, he'll, he'll essentially <laughs> he'll pack it in. I don't want to call a player out for not having effort. But. Well, and I agree with you because I think, you know, the Eastern Conference playoffs, we say it's going to be good, but that's mainly because of the semifinal matchups we thought we were going to get when you get to the last four, Sixers, Celtics, Raptors, Bucks. So the first round, we always thought, might be kind of a clunker anyway, but another... So if you get that Sixers, Celtics series, that's awesome because that gives you a first-round matchup. Oh, my God. That's good. Yeah. But I would say this, if the seeds hold serve now, which... Everyone's so clumped together, they probably won't. But the 3-6 first-round series, if you're a Hoops fan, I think would be very entertaining, but you'd have Pacers-Nets. Nets, Nets, not a bad team. I think that would be a fun series between two young teams that are are fun to watch. D'Angelo Russell has surprised me. Yeah, so I mean, like, you look at Brooklyn, Dinwiddie, I mean, they got some decent players. They got some shooters. I think that would be a good series if you're an NBA fan and don't need to see superstars to be entertained. You can watch two young teams play. My last thought on the NBA with the Tankapalooza thing is, and I don't know how this may not happen because there'd be an outrage, but what if you what if you made it to where so there's 30 teams in the NBA, you have 14 that get into the lottery, right? 16 make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. If you don't make the playoffs, you get in the lottery, and then the odds go based on how good you were. So the 14 and 13 teams get the worst odds because they were on the doorstep of the playoffs. Okay. So that's what incent- that's what incentivizes the tank, right? It's all about as many ping pong balls as you can possibly get. So they tried to change it this year to where the bottom, bottom three have the same odds. Here's the problem. You're still trying to get in the bottom three. Now, this might be a huge shock to people, and there might be years where it turns out bad, and the Bulls were actually a benefit of this. And An example I'll explain. What if all 14 teams get the same odds? You miss the playoffs, you get the same amount of balls. Now, now there's no real Incentive, reason. If yeah. you finish last, it's just because you're bad. It's not because you tried to get there. Now, you're going to say, well, what happens when those 13 and 14 teams that are not that bad get a first pick? Well, they're out of NBA help. But, but look, look at the Bulls. The Bulls were the last team to miss the playoffs in 08. They got the number they one pick number anyway one and got pick. Rose. Yeah. And, and what I'm saying is, is, yes, it eliminates two things in my opinion. Number one, it eliminates the basketball purgatory that everybody says, well, if you're a seven or an eight seed, or you're not good just to win the championship. You can't win and you're not and you're not low enough to get a good pick. So it it, it, it decentivizes people to just be competitive. And then at the same point, you have people trying to be bad. Make it to the point where if you finish dead last or you're the last team. You know, the first team out of the playoffs. You have the same chances of getting that pick. Now, you're going to have teams that are constantly trying to improve, and there's really no downside. Like what the Bulls are doing right now, the Bulls winning these games. If you take this tank bullshit away, as a Bulls fan, as someone in the front office of the Bulls, you can look at the improvement you're seeing, and it's actually a good thing. The fan base can get excited. Because right now, you have a Bulls fan base that's watching them win these games and then going... No, we're falling further away from the Zion sweepstakes. Make it to where, as long as you're in that bottom 14, you have the same chance. Let me, so let me clarify something. I actually 
I actually disagree with you on that fan perspective because we're in Chicago. I have a lot of diehard Bulls fans, and they are happy to see these wins. And I I'm am tr- too. I'm trying to explain to them, you, you should be rooting for them not to win. Because in the current system, we've talked about how it might change. In the current system, you need to be bottom three. And as of right now, they're playing their way out of that bottom three. They're not in it. They're They're not in it. They're playing their way out. That, to me, is there's not enough intelligence yet with the sports fan. I'm not calling the everyday fan out. You want to see your hometown team win. But every single season, as a pro franchise, your goal is to win a championship. It's that simple. And if you're not doing things that put you in a position to win a championship, maybe not this year, but the next year and the following year, then to me as a fan, you're not doing your job. The games are is like the smallest 10% of the entire thing. Everything is done prior to the games, okay? So for fans, if you're listening to this, take a look at your team. What do the prospects look like? Give me an example like Utah. Utah isn't to me in basketball hell. Oklahoma City at some point is gonna give up the booty and two of those players are gonna leave. More likely that it's gonna be Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson, okay? That opens up the West wildly. A team like Portland with Damian Lillard and, and um, CJ McCollum and Nurkic, that's a team that can make waves. So criticize your team, not because they're just not winning games, but put it into a bigger picture. Are they doing things to put themselves in a position to win a championship? That's what you have to look at. Jeff, we have a giant UFC card tonight. That we do. A, I'm, I'm, again, second time this podcast, I'm getting goosebumps. A giant card, two championship fights with the new belts. I am stoked. Are you a John Jones fan? I am. I am. And it's been unfortunate, uh, the troubles and the issues he's had. Because, see, I believe, real quickly, there was a time, now both guys had issues, where we were supposed to get an Anderson Silva-John Jones super fight. Back when Silva was still champ, before he ended up losing to Weidman a couple times, breaking his leg, and his downturn kind of began. I think we were robbed of a modern-day Ali Frazier type fight. So just to go back to just to go back to my fanhood for John Jones, it started back when we were in high school. And you could tell right then and there that he was when he was making his way up the 205 ranks originally, you could just tell that he was special. And it was at the same time when Anderson Silva was on his dominant run. So it just breaks my heart that we never got to see those two fight. But I am a Jones fan. I'm a little nervous because it's, I feel like, based on pattern of history, he's going to come out tonight, look fantastic, and win, and then we'll find out on Wednesday that he failed the drug test again. <laughs> so yeah, with the that's Pico's, my biggest concern. Picograms. My, my biggest concern with Jones is what we might find out after the fight more than the actual fight. He, he's he's a giant favorite tonight. Uh, you're gonna have to lay close to nine dollars to win a dollar. But this goes to our main, you know, the main term of the podcast is value. value. Break that down because uh, Anthony Smith is a uh, six to one long shot. Now he does have a puncher's chance. Now I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say there's value because I I don't think he is, there's not a legitimate chance for him to win. If he is going to win, and when you take a look at these long long shots against big favorites, you have to ask yourself again. How do they win? How, how do they pull it out? And he's going to have to knock John Jones out. John Jones has not been knocked out in his UFC career. He's had one loss, and it's not even a loss. It was a disqualification. Let me give you an idea of what value looks like to me. Cody Garbrandt, former champion, 
after uh, a, a lengthy rehabilitation process, is back in the octagon tonight against Pedro Munoz. Cody Garbrandt minus 155, slight favorite. That to me is value. I put a three handle on this odds before they came out. Cody Garbrandt's going to smash this guy. He has some of the best camps that I've seen. Um, there was the big breakup with TJ Dillashaw and Team Alpha Male. Very before. disappointing performance for him in that fight. Big as well. disappointment. Off a quick knockout. But. Cody Garbrandt, to me, is someone, if you want to put a big bet on, minus 155 is not nearly as, as short as it should be. Um, I, again, I would put that at, three, at minus 300, somewhere in that range. You're getting minus 155. That's a three or five unit play for me tonight. That's going to be my, my number one play. The other value you find is in women's MMA fights. It very rarely goes over the total round. So in MMA, there's two primary bets you can take. The fighter, which is essentially the money line, who will win, and the over-under on rounds. It's most likely going to be one and a half. Sometimes it's two and a half, depending on whether it's a championship fight or the odds makers just think it's going to go long. With women's MMA fights, I think they're over 81% to the over. It's very rare you get a finish in an MMA fight. I see an opportunity tonight for a knockout in the first round and a half. It's, uh, where's it at? Oh, Zong versus Torres. Torres is an underdog, slightly, plus slightly, 115. Not a, lot of value on not a lot of value on her. But the under is plus 275, two and a half. Okay? I think that is a tremendous bet. Torres does have one punch knockout capability. If you haven't seen her fight, she is a scrapper. Go out on YouTube and, and look up some of her previous fights. She's only had a couple in the UFC, but she is a bulldog. Under two and a half rounds, plus 275. Throw a half unit on there. Throw a unit on there. That's an opportunity to point out one of these one out of five times where they do go under, and you can really cash in. And that will cover some of your other favorite bets that you'll have tonight. Is there anything on the card? Let me uh, let me touch on one other fight that I like. Ben Askren, first fight in the UFC. I love Against this guy. Ruthless Robbie Lawler. One of my favorite guys too. This is a tough fight for me, but you can't bet with your heart. You have to bet with your brain. Ben Askren is going to put Robbie Lawler into a pretzel. Robbie Lawler, one of the, he's a Hall of Famer, no doubt. But Ben Askren is going to take this guy to the ground and do things you've never seen before. Um, ben Askren, a former world champion Brazilian jiu-jitsu player, uh, a great uh, NCAA wrestler. That is a guy, and he's, he's a favorite. Um, there's not a whole bunch of value. We go back to that, that term of value. He's minus 272. That's a little, that's right in line with where he probably should be at. I don't see any value on taking Robbie Lawler unless you think he's just going to come out with haymakers. Ben Askren is a guy who will be on the ground 80% of the fight, or ideally on the ground 80% of the fight. What is your thoughts on well, that? Well, it's, it's, it's the typical matchup. Um, it's a typical conflicting matchup that is really at the core of MMA. It's the striker versus the wrestler. Right. Um, historically, the wrestler will win. Um, and it really comes down now. It, it it really it really comes down to takedown defense. You know, one of the greatest. You know, people don't even know this because Chuck Liddell spent most of his career knocking people out. But the reason that was is he had one of the best takedown defenses in the world at the mm -hmm. time. You couldn't get him on the ground. Mm -hmm. So a stand up and fighter, an iron chin. By the a way, a stand up. Yeah, that went away later in his career. The yeah, whole shit that everybody knock him out. Yep. Um, but a stand up fighter, as part of his craft, you may not never know it. Their phenomenal level of wrestling can be hidden in plain sight because they're never on the ground. 
They're, they have such good takedown defense that you never see them on the ground. Now, Robbie Lawler, I can't quite say I, don't, I, I can't quite say that he's not susceptible. I, I, I do think Askren wins the fight as well. I think he wins it in the classic way that a wrestler beats a striker, which is boring. I think he's going to get on top, ground and pound, continue to advance position. I think Lawler eventually playing defense on the ground for a striker is not only frustrating, but it's incredibly tiring. So I think over the course of – it might go decision. Askren might just have to lay on him and abuse him until the clock runs out. But I, I, I do agree with you in terms of how I think that – unfortunately, because I'm a big Lawler fan. You, UFC fights start standing up, and, and that's they do. a fact. They do. That's a fact, and that's what gives some of these – Robbie Lawler this late in his career, he's not as uh, – He's not as dynamic as he once used to be. He, he did have a decent ground game at times during his career, but he has always been a stand-up, let's get in the phone booth and let's duke it out. He's not going to be able to do that with Ben Askren because Ben Askren has no desire at all to trade punches with him. The, the last fight that I will be betting on tonight, Zabit Magomed Sharipov. This is a guy no one has heard of. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not an easy name to pronounce. Let me say it one more time. Zabit Magomed Sharipov. His last fight, he brutalized the guy. I can't even remember his name, but he's fighting Jeremy Stevens tonight. Jeremy Stevens, good career, again, late in his career. Uh, Zabit, you can get at minus 255. Again, not a whole bunch of value, but uh, we talk about if you want to lay juice, doesn't matter if you win. So I, I don't, there's no way Jeremy Stevens wins this fight. If you want to throw him in a parlay of sorts with maybe that under, you could get some really good value with the with the women's fight. But Zabit Magomed Sharipov, that is a guy you want to look out for moving forward in the in the middleweight uh, division. All right, so perfect. All right, so let's we're gonna put a bow on it. Um, so for people listening that still might be trying to get familiar with how to properly bet a, a, a UFC or a boxing event versus a game where there's a spread, it's a lot different. Assume that. I'm a moron, which might not be that hard for you to assume. And talk to me about, I'm telling you, hey, Tony, I want to bet on UFC fights tonight. How do I do it? What are the ways that I can lay money on these fights tonight? Explain that to me. There are two ways. One, if you like a fighter to win, that's one bet. So that's the money line bet. Plus or minus. Favorite underdog. If you like a guy to win, you're just going to lay the price that you see, whether it's minus or plus. The other way to bet is the over-under. And Jeff, if you haven't seen the sports wagering class, go to Busta Media. There's a sports wagering class on money lines and totals. The other way to bet is over under the number of rounds the fight will finish in. If you think it's going to go to a decision, that's clearly the over. If you think it's going to finish in a knockout or a submission or a stoppage of sorts, you're going to take the under. It's usually one and a half for a three-round fight. It is sometimes two and a half for a three-round fight. It's also two and a half most times for a championship five-round fight. Again, I touched on it before. The women's MMA, you're going to see it juiced heavily. You're going to see a big minus on the over because historically they have gone over. But in bigger fights, non-heavyweight fights, it's pretty even juice-wise on the over and the under. So those are the two ways. The third way, and we'll get into this, it's more of a boxing proposition, is the type of decision. Whether it's going to be unanimous decision, split decision, majority decision, we'll get into that in a future episode. That is not a giant betting op- uh, proposition in MMA, but in boxing you can take that, and that's where there is some significant value if you watch a lot of the sport and you know the tendencies of a lot of fighters. 
So those are the two ways. I gave you a couple picks tonight, uh, over-unders and money lines. Hopefully we're all a little bit profitable at the end of the night. There is nothing on the slate for the pros or the college hoops ranks that I like today. I would tell you if there is. A lot of these games are going to be hard to handicap because we're so close. We talked about conference championship season next week. I would stay away unless you have a really good beat on a game. Look at the UFC card tonight. It's going to be fun. I would say one to briefly touch on this this podcast will probably publish right before the game tips off. But while I'm thinking of it, uh, I'm going to go, unfortunately, against my own team today. Uh, Ohio State, their best player, center Caleb Wesson, is suspended uh, for the short term. They don't know exactly when, but they are going to Purdue today without their best offensive player for a team that's offensively challenged already. The spread has gone all the way to 12.5, which is a lot. But I would say, unfortunately, it pains me to say this, take Purdue, lay the 12.5. Ohio State has a very hard time scoring. Purdue's explosive offensively, especially when they're in their own house. I think Ohio State's going to have a hard time keeping up. The game's going to get away from them early. They're going to have to go deep into their bench with inexperienced freshmen. Could get ugly. So I would take Purdue. I would lay the 12.5. I know that's a big number, but just trust me. That's a pick. That is... Episode 2 of the Boston Media Podcast. We are on Apple Podcast. This is new. We're on Spotify. We're on Anchor. We are on Apple Podcast. So wherever you are listening to this, subscribe to all of them. Go to Instagram at Boston Media. We're going to be doing a whole, a whole bunch of UFC content tonight. We're going to be doing a lot for conference championship season next week. But go there and you'll see the links for the YouTube channel. You'll see the links for everything else. We have a lot of good video coming out uh, over the next week or two. Look out for the Tournament of Bad. It's coming up. It's going to coincide with the March Madness Tournament. And it's going to be driven by you, the listener, the viewer. Get your submissions in into the email at Instagram at Busted Media. But for now, Jeff, pleasure. We're out. Busted Media.